engine running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery, questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is the Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist, the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. I'm Chris Smith. Coming up, the latest on the COVID-19 symptoms that now make up the official symptoms list. Why do we prefer some smells over others? It turns out it's got nothing to do with culture. It's all in the shapes of the molecules. And how can sound travel at two different speeds on Mars? We'll hear how. And following the news, we'll be talking about cancer, but not the type you might expect. There are quite a number of examples of cancers spreading. These are all extremely tragic and sad, rare cases, but they can happen from time to time. These are cancers that defy what we understand about biology. They can jump from one animal to another. But how do they do that? And could this ever happen in humans? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Now, first up, UK COVID cases have reached a new high watermark in recent days, with surveys suggesting that millions of infections have occurred over the last week. This coincides with the cessation of free testing and the publication of a new list of symptoms that might earmark a case of coronavirus. There are now nine things on that list. So why this switch and why now? Tim Spector at King's College London has led the Zoe initiative that's logged COVID symptoms throughout the pandemic. And I caught up with him and began by asking, what is the most likely giveaway that you've got a COVID infection in 2022? Based on your symptoms at the moment, most of COVID are presenting with cold-like symptoms. Number one being sneezing, runny nose, headaches, fatigue and sore throat. After that, you may have some of these other symptoms which often appear a bit later which might be a cough, fever, and some distortion of your taste, although unlikely to be loss of smell, plus a whole range of other muscular aches and pains, etc. So at the moment, with COVID levels approaching about one in 14 people, it's more likely if you have cold-like symptoms that you have COVID than a cold. That's quite a turnaround from the Holy Trinity that we've been using to diagnose this from the get-go, which was the fever, the cough and the loss of sense of smell and taste. So why the switch all of a sudden? Well, we've been lobbying the government probably for 18 months now to change the list and they have steadfastly refused, although this evidence has been building up over 18 months and most other countries in the world have changed over a year ago. My belief is that the government did this to stop complaints that they couldn't meet demand with their free testing. And that's why on the 1st of April, when they abolished free testing, they came out with this new expanded list of symptoms in line with virtually every other country in the world. What sort of impact is this going to have then? Well, it depends how widely it's it's used and promoted by the government. I think the key here is about employers And I think that's where it is going to have an effect, which coincides with the government stopping payments for sick pay for COVID and has led to this rather muddled guidance. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I found this as an infection control doctor. I found this somewhat confusing where the message appears to be, if you can get out of bed and get out the door, you can go to work. Does it not say the same thing to you? It does. Uh, The only exception is if you've got a proven fever. 
which is what, you know, I remember as a kid at school, you know, desperately hoping I had a fever so I didn't have to go to school. It's completely contradictory to say there is this list of symptoms, but then in the guidance for going to work, essentially says if you've got a runny nose, a sore throat, and you're sneezing all over the place, if you feel well enough to go to work, go oh, there and, right. yeah. and, and, <laughs> and sneeze all over your colleagues, or sneeze on the tube, and nowhere does it say do as much as possible to mitigate mm. spreading it to 100 people. Do you think it, in the grand scheme of things, is actually going to make much of a difference, though, if, if we assume that COVID has turned into a much more mild illness? Because talking to some of the infection control nurses at the hospital I work at, they were saying that they've got people routinely in their 90s who are picking up, being picked up by screening, completely asymptomatic. What a turnaround from sort of two years ago, and that actually we are in danger of paralysing systems because we are trying to, to control the uncontrollable and perhaps the, the approach of, of accepting that now we have done our best to minimise the threats and the threats are low, that now it is time to, to regard this more as a cold rather than COVID. I can see that point of reasoning, but a colleague of mine did some modelling. It showed that if you reduced the self-isolation from five days to two days, this would have a huge knock-on effect on the numbers of infections and the number of hospitalizations uh, in the next six months. So what sounds like a fairly trivial difference in guidance can have a very big difference we're currently at 2,000 admissions a day, although all of those are not directly due to COVID. There's still a big burden, and that would push it much higher and would actually cause extra deaths. So I think you've got to look at the whole picture, and I think it is unwise to just say we're not going to bother at all and let people who are highly infective that just by keeping them at home for a few days, you could really reduce the number of infections in that workplace or hospitalizations. I think we have to find some halfway house between there's no point in bothering and further tough restrictions. Tricky one, isn't it? Tim Spector there. Now, our preference for smells feels very personal. We've got our favourite colognes that we like and soaps and, and also foods. But do we like certain smells because everyone around us likes them too and that's the way we've grown up? Or is it something else? Well, the answer is no, it's not because of the way we've grown up. It's not a cultural thing because people the world over both like and loathe the same sorts of smells. It's more, it turns out, to do with the shapes of the molecules, as Julia has been finding out. <sighs> There's nothing like the smell of spring, is there? The freshly cut grass, which makes my eyes stream, but it's still delightful. There's lovely flowers coming out. It's just one of my favourite times of year to go outside and take in a good sniff. And my love for the smell of spring could potentially be something which is universal. Aspen Majeed from the University of Oxford explains, and it also sounds like she is taking in the wonderful smells of spring. Smell studies, like most psychology studies, really, or medical studies more broadly, typically focus on Western participants, usually living in big cities, usually near universities, usually in the middle classes. When we're making theories about how things work, we hope to be making claims about the whole of the human population. So you really want to be testing people from diverse outputs, especially if we want to try and untangle whether it's culture that, for example, causes our preferences for smells or just individual preferences or biology. Which communities did you study? 
We tried to get people with very different lifestyles. So we tested different hunter-gatherer communities. And then we had some small-scale farmers in Ecuador, for example. And then people that live in big cities in Mexico and Thailand. So we're trying to take people with very different sorts of experiences. When ranking these different smells, what came out on top and what was the least liked smell? In our study... People across the world all really liked the smell of vanilla and they least liked the smell of isovaleric acid, which smells a little bit like sweaty feet. It didn't matter what culture people were in or what kind of environment they lived in. Everybody generally preferred vanilla and they all thought that the isovaleric sweaty feet smell was really bad. How much influence did culture actually have in these preferences? A really small amount, only 6% of the data could be explained by culture. So most of it seemed to be shared. And then there were some individual differences too, but culture plays a very small role. How much of the proportion of what people preferred in terms of smell came down to the molecular structure of the odour molecule? Anything that we smell is basically a molecule and any molecule has thousands of different features. So we can look at those features and see if we can predict how pleasant something is. And when we do that, it turns out we can predict just from the molecule itself, which odors people are going to find nice and which ones are going to find stinky. So if we're genetically almost built to prefer certain smells over others, why do you think that is? Probably some smells are telling us that something's dangerous. Our sense of smell is very sensitive to things that could be going wrong. So we can smell, for example, a gas leak before we can see anything going wrong. We can smell fire from a distance or the fact that the milk is going off. So our noses are very sensitive to signals of danger. And it's likely that what we're finding is the same sensitivity to things that could be potentially toxic for us. I think COVID has taught us that the sense of smell is really important. So one of the symptoms that we know that COVID has is a loss of the sense of smell. But luckily, the sense of smell is really malleable and flexible. So people do have their sense of smell returning. Yeah, I think we take our sense of smell for granted. When I had COVID and lost my eye, it was so acute and you don't realise how much pleasure and joy smell brings into your life until it's taken away from you. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, so everybody should go out there and sniff something and enjoy it. Well, dare I say, some science not to be sniffed at there too. That was Asfa Majid from the University of Oxford, enjoying the sounds of spring as she chatted with Julia about the study she's just published in Current Biology. Now, are bacteria aiding and abetting the spread of cancer? That's the conclusion of a new study this week from scientists at Westlake University in China, where they found that tumours pick up bacteria from the bloodstream and take them inside their cells where they somehow boost the strength of those cancer cells so they can better withstand travelling through the bloodstream to create secondary tumours elsewhere in the body. Eric Rahman is a cancer biologist at Cancer Research UK. Now he wasn't involved in this study but he works in the same general area and I asked him to take a look at the results for us. A couple of years ago some major papers have come out demonstrating that in human tumours we see bacteria actually within the cells and that they're having some sort of contribution to tumor development. What this particular group out of Wakefield has demonstrated, not only are bacteria cells present, they help to support the dissemination or trafficking of cells from the primary tumor throughout the body in the process that we call metastasis. 
How do they do it? How did they show that A, the microbes are there, and B, that they're making an active contribution to making the cancer spread? They used some really cool mouse models of mammary tumor development and coupled that with some microscopy. And through genetic labeling of bacterial strains, basically a fluorescent protein or color, so you can follow where the bacterial strains go within the tumor, they can see these green labeled bacterial strains within the primary tumor cells. And they can see that these green bacteria are retained within the primary tumor cells when they leave their site traffic in the peripheral blood and then seed at a distant organ. So what this group has been able to uncover is that different strains of bacteria have different profound impacts on the ability of cells to travel or spread throughout the body. And what if you remove those bacteria, the tumour spreads less well or is less likely to take up residence at a distant site in the body? Yeah, that's right. So through a number of different combinations of antibiotic treatments, they were able to selectively kill the bacteria within the tumor cells themselves. And when they did this, they identified that certain strains that were obliterated reduced the ability of the cancer cells to seed and create metastases. Where do these microbes come from in the first place? How do they get into the cancer to start with? Our bodies are composed of large, diverse microbiome phyla, most well characterized within the colorectal intestinal tissues. And through many years of research, we've seen that many of our other organs also have this uh, relationship with bacterial strains within our body that are normally there. So these are normal residents. I think a big question out there is how do the bacteria that are in the surrounding environment actually get into the cell itself? And there's a number of bits of research understanding this, but I think we're really just getting at the surface of this process of this, in a way, I guess, symbiotic relationship of the bacteria going intracellularly to the cancer cells and promoting their survival. And what do those microbes do so that when the cancer cells do break away from the primary tumour where the disease begins and start to travel around the body, they are more likely to spread somewhere else? What's the role of the microbes in that happening? Yeah, this is where this particular study, I thought, really sparked my interest here. What they're able to demonstrate is that when the microbiome occur intracellularly, that makes them more healthy. One example that they looked at is uh, shear stress. So imagine fluid is flowing through our peripheral veins and arteries, and that's really harsh conditions on cells and their cell membranes. So if you're not in the right structure or formation, you will die. They've demonstrated that the microbiome helps to reprogram the cell to survive these conditions. How do we use this knowledge then? What I think is really beneficial from this study that's coming out is that we need to start looking at how we treat metastatic cancer differently than we are currently. We should start considering how do you target these different strains. And it's not just what's happening at the cellular genetic level, but other contributing factors as well. Eric Rahman taking a look at that new study that's just out in the journal Cell. From baffling British weather, the sideways spines of the vertebrae coming off here, to looking at a cheetah from the inside out, games making their way to the clinic, and what to eat in your garden. Mm. The Naked Scientists In Short podcasts bring you a top up of short, compelling science stories. Listen and download for free 
at nakedscientist.com slash short or subscribe to Naked Specials wherever you get your podcasts. It's The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. Still to come, contagious cancers and we hear what sound sounds like on Mars. Now, on April the 4th, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, published the third part of its comprehensive review of climate science. Inside, it argues that stabilising the climate will require fast action and emissions must peak by 2025 for the world to have any chance of meeting the goals that were agreed previously in Paris. Well, here to tell us a bit more is environmental scientist Joe House. She's from the University of Bristol. Joe, what are the main conclusions and recommendations in the report this time? This report looks specifically at climate action, what we can do, and in fact, what needs to happen in order for us to limit the worst of climate change. And it finds that we really need to much more rapidly look at bringing down our greenhouse gas emissions. They need to peak by 2025 and to be reduced by about half by about 2030 if we are going to keep warming to less than 1.5 degrees and definitely within two degrees. This sounds like we're running over the same old ground again though. As someone who's a climate scientist for 30 years we've been saying this a long time but what we're seeing now with this series of reports that have come out the science is really clear that climate change is anthropogenic. The report that came out about a month ago was about the severe impacts that already are being experienced throughout the world and that will only get worse. And this one is making it clear that the window is now very limited to be able to take the action we need to limit to 1.5 or 2 degrees. Is it going to basically take the crisis happening? Because we, we just seem to have been receiving these warnings year after year that this is going to happen, this is going to happen, and it's a bit like sort of speed cameras on the motorway. <laughs> People disregard the speed limit until they get a ticket, almost. I mean, at what point are we going to give the world a ticket and finally something's going to change? Because we seem to pretty much be going business as usual. I haven't noticed my lifestyle change. It is really incredibly frustrating, but there are some things in the report that give me hope, which is there's about 18 countries in the world that have actually already peaked their emissions and managed to keep reducing year on year. And it hasn't cost them a lot in terms of GDP. They've been able to do it in an affordable way. It is easier for some countries to do this. If you live yeah, in a country absolutely. where the sun shines 24-7, I mean, I'm being facetious, of course, but take California. Every day it's a sunny day. Putting solar panels over enormous amounts of space you have at your disposal means you have enormous opportunities to produce very much guaranteed energy. If you live in the UK, the sun doesn't shine half the time, the wind doesn't blow half the time. It's a very different problem that you're grappling with, isn't it? Well, actually, in the UK, we have managed to reduce our emissions a lot by switching from burning coal to burning gas. So that's been a, a big move for us. And there's plenty of countries that have a lot of wind energy as well as solar. And the cost of the renewable technologies have dropped massively as solar energy costs have dropped by 85%. And now we're getting the technology with batteries is moving forward so we can store some of that renewable energy. Surprisingly, it's actually sometimes some of the poorer countries that are actually doing the most because mm. they are feeling the impacts and they know how important this is. Joe, thanks very much for joining us and telling us about the latest IPCC report. That's Joe House from the University of Bristol. 
Now, just over a year ago, NASA's Perseverance rover touched down on Mars. It's equipped with some of the most powerful analytical equipment that you can possibly send into space. And its mission is to look for evidence of life, both past and possibly present. But it's also got some older technology aboard, including a microphone. And periodically, scientists have been eavesdropping on what Mars sounds like which resulted in the rather strange discovery that, on Mars at least, sound travels at two different speeds, as Harry Lewis and public astronomer in Cambridge, Matt Bothwell, have both been discussing. So we have a piece of sound that's come out from Perseverance, Matt. Have you heard it before, or shall I play it? Uh, What do you give it a play? Let's give it a play. What we seem to have, it sounds like someone standing outside in a field on a rather windy day with not much else going around. Uh, it's very low frequencies that we're hearing there, isn't it? That's right. Well, it's, it sounds like someone standing in a field recording in a wind because in a way, that's what it is. It's a wind on a different planet. But at the end of the day, we're picking up a wind. You're right that we're hearing very low frequencies. And that's one of the interesting things about audio on Mars that the Martian atmosphere is uh, much thinner and made of different substances to the Earth's atmosphere, and so sound will behave differently. Sound is a wave that travels through like some kind of medium, like air or water or whatever, and depending on what that medium is, that can change the way the sound works. So think about when you inhale a helium balloon and then your voice goes all squeaky. That happens because the speed of sound in helium is much, much faster than the speed of sound in normal air. I suppose that's the same with something like water, right? There's a speed difference between water and air. Exactly, yeah. And so in in physics, the speed of a wave is uh, the frequency of the wave times the wavelength. And the wavelength has to stay the same because that's set by the size of your vocal cords. And so if the speed increases, then the frequency has to go up as well. And so your voice sounds squeaky when you inhale helium. Um, The opposite thing is true for Mars's atmosphere. Um, It's a very thin carbon dioxide atmosphere. And so the sound is going to be very, very low. So you get the opposite effect. The speed of sound is lower on Mars. And so you lose those high frequencies. And so everything sounds very kind of booming and low. The surprising thing is that there's actually not one single speed of sound on Mars. It's actually two different speeds of sound, or the speed of sound on Mars varies depending on how high-pitched the note is. The reason is really interesting, actually. Um, If you think about what sound actually is, it's like a, a wave that carries energy through the air. And if you imagine a wave washing through the air, you kind of imagine all the little air molecules bouncing into each other. And that sort of model works here on Earth. But the Martian atmosphere is mostly carbon dioxide, And the carbon dioxide, these very little rigid springy molecules. And so as a wave travels through the Martian atmosphere, some of the energy of that wave goes into vibrating the little carbon dioxide molecules. And so uh, depending on the frequency of the wave, it's either going to travel as sound does on Earth or it's going to lose some energy. And so you get this sort of double speed of sound effect. The other thing that I noticed about this audio is that it's just wind. It's just the weather. There's nothing else really going on. It's quite it's quite a quiet place, really, isn't it? That's right. And I think that, again, that's because Mars's atmosphere is so thin. It's actually pretty bad at transmitting sound. The rule is the denser your medium is, the better it's going to transmit sound. Uh, if you go in the opposite direction, think about water, much denser than air. And whales can communicate over thousands of miles in the oceans because they're talking through this dense medium. In Mars's thin atmosphere, you have the opposite problem, and it would be very hard to have a conversation standing 10 metres apart because your voices would just get attenuated. 
And so any distant sounds on Mars, like rocks moving around or whatever, the sound just disappears into the thin air. Well, you know, as the old saying goes, in space no one can hear you scream. Well, sounds like that almost applies to Mars as well. You were listening to Matt Bothwell and Harry Lewis talking about that observation that sounds of different frequencies bizarrely move at different speeds on Mars. Much has changed for business owners, managers and staff recently. But with over 30 years' experience in telecommunications, award-winning independent company Spitfire have the expertise to make sure you stay ahead and can keep on innovating. Whether it's connectivity, MPLS networks, firewalls or phone systems, Spitfire can help. To find out more, go to spitfire.co.uk. That's spitfire.co.uk. Spitfire, telecoms and IP engineering solutions for business since 1988. Music in the program is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and in this half of the program, we're going to be talking about cancers that can spread not just within a body, but from one individual to another. Now, cancers are made from a person's own cells going rogue. If a cell acquires the right combinations of mutations or changes in its genetic code, it can divide uncontrollably and lead to the formation of a tumour. As these cells contain a unique individual's DNA, if they end up in another individual's body, it should sound the immune alarm, just like an incompatible organ transplant. They should be recognised as foreign and destroyed. Now, some viruses, which are of course also infectious, like the human papillomavirus or HPV, can also cause cancer, but this is because they can trigger changes in a cell's genetic code that leads to tumour formation. And in these sorts of cases, the virus is infectious rather than the cancer itself. In the very rare instances of contagious cancers, though, it's the cancer cells themselves that are passing from one individual to another. And that's exactly what we're going to be exploring this week. To emphasise, these cancers haven't been observed naturally yet in humans, but they have been spotted in other animals. And one animal that's experiencing a rare cancer outbreak are Australia's Tasmanian devils. This disease, which only appeared for the first time in recent decades, has pushed the species to the brink of extinction. Threatened species keeper Ben from the Healesville Sanctuary at Zoos Victoria in Australia explains how they're helping to save the Tasmanian devil to Julia Ravy during, well, I suppose you could call it feeding time at the zoo. So today we're going to feed some of our Tassie devils. All of our food is labelled with little tags so we know who... Whose food is whose, because everyone has a little bit different weights. So we, again, we're doing a scatter feed here, so we throw food throughout their habitat. We spread it around so that they have to go forage for it. Some of the devils over here are pretty shy. Tasmanian devils don't really truly follow their name, and they're actually very timid by nature. Tazzy devils are threatened species. So with some of our breeding females that we're hoping to breed this season, we've got camera footage monitoring them feeding. So we just make sure that's on turned on every night and we check that every day just to see if the females have eaten overnight. And the main reason we need to check this is because if they're going through estrus, they don't eat their food as often or as frequently as normal. 
and that way we can tell that they are going through their estrus and we can start to prepare for breeding. Sanctuaries like the Heesville Sanctuary, supported by Zoos Victoria in Australia, are playing a vital role in helping the Tasmanian devil avoid extinction through their breeding programs. These animals are also being released into the wild on islands and mainland Australia to up their numbers. This is because their numbered sightings have dropped by 80% in the last two decades. And as Ben said, they are officially an endangered species. Hannah Siddle, an assistant professor in molecular immunology from the University of Southampton, explains what has caused this drastic decline. So the majority of the decline has been caused by what we call DFT1, which is devil facial tumour disease. And that is the tumour that emerged sometime just before 1995. We do now have a second contagious cancer in the Tasmanian devil population termed DFT2. And it is now responsible for some declines, but in a very limited geographic area where it's still located. And you say this is a contagious cancer. So how does it spread from one animal to another? It's a little bit like for us, a virus or bacteria, because it can pass when the devils contact each other. Rather than being a virally induced tumour, this is actually the cancer cells themselves that are able to pass between individuals. And we think in the case of the Tasmanian devils that this is primarily occurring when they bite each other which unfortunately they do tend to do when they're fighting and in the mating season as well. Our best evidence at the moment is that these cells are actually grafting into the next devil when this biting behaviour occurs. And once these tumour cells then seed into the next individual, they grow and establish and make a new tumour, which can then be passed on to the next individual. That's rare, isn't it? Because cancer is made up of a unique individual cells that have gone rogue in a way. So what is it, do you think, that makes this cancer able to transmit in a population? We think that these tumours are taking advantage of the fact that although genetic diversity is not so low that these animals are clonal or exactly the same, they do have a lower level of genetic diversity than in populations that have more healthy numbers. We do think that these tumours may be taking advantage of this fact, and that may be allowing them to initially start to spread between a few individuals. After that, though, the idea that there is not enough genetic diversity in the population, and so this is allowing the tumour to take hold, that idea breaks down a little bit because we do have some genetic diversity and enough genetic diversity in the population to stop the tumour spreading. But tumours are very good at acquiring new mutations and they adapt, of course, they adapt to their environment. And so they will acquire adaptations that are then helping them to then passage between individuals. And we have found that one of the adaptations that they have made, these tumours, is to lose some of the proteins or what we call antigens on the cell surface of the tumours that are usually a flag for the immune system and would stop the tumour from transferring between individuals. This adaptation then allows the tumours to essentially become silent or invisible in the population. Are the cells in this tumour the same in every individual infected? 
Essentially, yes. So when we say they're the same, they all have derived from a single ancestral tumor cell, which is a cell in a Tasmanian devil that became malignant a long time ago. The tumors that are currently circulating in the Tasmanian devil will be slightly different to what they were when that tumor first arose and started transferring because they've acquired new genetic mutations, new adaptations to their environment. You mentioned that there are two of these contagious cancers in Tasmanian devils. So what's happened there? Is this the same disease, but it's just a really mutated version or is it something new entirely? It is something new entirely in that it arose in a completely independent manner from a different individual, this second tumour. Really, really unusual to have that occur. And actually, this is the only mammalian species where we know that that's occurred. We think that the second tumour arose sometime around 2014. And interestingly, we think we've been tracing this from nearly the beginning of its genesis. There is a lot of effort going into trapping Tasmanian devils in the geographic location of DFT2, which is in the southeast of Tasmania, and it's quite confined at the moment, although recent efforts have shown that it is moving northwards, and so it is starting to spread, unfortunately, and become more prevalent. It seems like an unusual phenomenon for this to happen twice in one species. Is this a case of lightning striking twice in the same place or are these animals do you think just susceptible to these types of conditions? I think it probably is lightning striking twice as you say but I think we need to probably be more aware in wildlife generally. Possibly these tumours are arising at different times but that they don't have the success that DFT1 and DFT2 have had in the population. So I think it's probably likely that these tumours do arise sometimes. With communicable diseases in humans, we aim to treat them. We aim to develop vaccinations or other medical treatments. Is anything in the line like that for Tasmanian devils? Will there be a vaccine for these tumours, do you think? Transmissible tumours should be not easy to vaccinate against, but they should present some sort of routes for vaccination. And certainly we've been able to show that if we can restore some of these antigens that I was talking about before that usually coat the tumour cells, then if you put those into a Tasmanian devil or in a, a co-culture situation, which is what we call this, then we can actually see an immune response against these antigens on the tumor cells. So that tells us that the Tasmanian devil immune system is capable of responding. But unfortunately, it does seem as if this type of vaccine with these antigens on the surface of the tumor cells, it does work in some animals, but it doesn't seem to work in 100% of animals. And we're not quite sure what the efficacy of that is and why it doesn't work in some instances. So I think we need to do just a bit more work to understand what it is that the immune system responds to and whether then we could make a more targeted vaccine based on that information. Let's hope they can. Hannah Siddle there from the University of Southampton. Now, Tasmanian devils, as we've just been hearing, are one mammal that experiences these transmissible tumours. But another animal, probably one that's even more familiar to you, is one that we all know and love. It's our best friend, And that's dogs. They're also victims of a contagious cancer. And here to tell us more about that one is Elizabeth Murchison from the Transmissible Cancers Group at the University of Cambridge. Tell us first, what is this transmissible tumour in dogs and how does it spread? 
Dog transmissible cancer is quite different to the one in Tasmanian devils. It's also spread between animals by the transfer of living cancer cells themselves. But in this case, the cells are spread during mating and this results in genital tumours. It's actually very, very common, although most people in the UK probably haven't heard of it. And that's because its main reservoir is free roaming, sexually active, uncontrolled dog populations. And as we know, they don't occur in the UK anymore. But actually, interestingly, this disease was first described in the scientific literature in the UK 200 years ago in London. So we know it was common here once, but it disappeared in the 20th century due to the control of dogs. And what what fraction of dogs worldwide have, have got it then? It's extraordinary. About... 1% of dogs worldwide in places where this is endemic, which is most places, have this disease. So it's extraordinarily common. It's quite shocking to think how many dogs have this disease. But it's different to the Tasmanian devil cancer in that it's not nearly as deadly. Dogs with this disease, they tend to have localised tumours which remain in the external genitalia. They don't metastasize or spread to other parts of the body that frequently. And also the other wonderful thing is that this disease is highly curable with a course of simple chemotherapy. Most of these dogs, almost 100% of them, will undergo a complete cure. And we think that that's actually something to do with the immune system rather than to do with the way that chemotherapy drugs act per se. Hannah Siddle was telling us about the Tasmanian devils that there's evidence that in each case, because there were two diseases, they've originated from one individual. Is the same true with the dog tumour then? Exactly. And that's the really fascinating thing about this dog cancer, that all the tumours and all these dogs all around the world, they all carry the cells of one individual dog that first gave rise to this cancer. Extraordinarily, we think that that one dog lived about 6,000 years ago. And that dog was a dog which got a cancer rather than that cancer dying together with its dog host, as most cancers do. Those cancer cells spread to another host. And from there, that one single cancer lineage has survived for thousands of years and has spread all around the world. And it's by far the most prolific and widespread cancer that we know of in nature. It's really a really remarkable phenomenon. How do you know it's 6,000 years old? Well, that's an estimate, and it's based on counting mutations in the genome of this cancer. So as cancer cells, or actually indeed any cell, divides, it will accumulate mutations with time. So what we've been able to do is estimate how quickly cells of this dog cancer accumulate mutations. And we've done that by collecting tumours where we know the tumour was spread from one dog to another dog and we know when that happened. So by counting the number of mutations in these short intervals, we've been able to estimate how many mutations occur per unit time. And then by counting the number of mutations back to that original dog and applying this mutation rate, we've been able to come up with this estimate, which does have huge error associated with it. So we think around 6,000 years ago, give or take a few thousand years. Why do you think that the Tasmanian devil tumour is a disaster for them? But in dogs, as you've pointed out, it's eminently treatable and much more mild as a disease. Well, this is an interesting question because it does make you wonder whether thousands of years of evolution have potentially caused this dog cancer to adapt to being a less aggressive cancer. Because if you think about it, a cancer which comes in and kills its host is going to limit its own 
possibilities for onward transmission, whereas a cancer that comes in and causes a fairly mild disease, lives alongside its host for potentially years, has many more transmission opportunities. So although we can't time travel back to that original cancer that first arose from that dog several thousand years ago to see whether it was actually more aggressive, it's a really interesting possibility that this cancer may have adapted to being less deadly. Absolutely fascinating. We'll leave it there for now. Stay with us, though, please, Elizabeth. We'll hear more from you a bit later on in the programme about these sorts of cancers more generally. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. We are going to leave the world of mammals behind us a bit now. We'll come back to them when we talk to Elizabeth again in a minute. But we're going to talk now about this sort of transfer also occurring in animals called bivalves. These are shellfish because, believe it or not, they also get transmissible tumours and they include animals like mussels, clams and cockles. But before we talk about those cancers, Rob Ellis, who's a researcher in ecophysiology and sustainable aquaculture at the University of Exeter, has gone down to his local estuary to shellebrate the wonders of these organisms. So actually I'm today out on the ex-estuary in East Devon and in this estuary bivalves play a critical role for biodiversity. So we have a number of different bivalve populations, probably most visibly noticeable are those of the mussels and the oysters. So these two species are classed as ecosystem engineers. The two organisms, when they settle, create a natural reef. Now, in doing so, they create a novel habitat that's able to support a range of other species. If we think about a region, for example, the southwest of England, the number of species supported by bivalve reefs can go up to around 750. As well as improving biodiversity, bivalves obviously play a really important role as a food source for things like crabs, starfish and other benthic predators. And actually, they are really important in terms of a food source for humans. So around three miles off the coast of East Devon, it's a bit of a cloudy day today, so I can't quite see it. But we've got the largest mussel farm in the UK, offshore shellfish, called mussels of readily filter feedings. The population of mussels or a mussel bed can actually improve water clarity and therefore really benefit adjacent habitats such as seagrass beds and associated species like that. They can be a really powerful tool that we can employ to therefore improve those coastal environments and reduce human impact. If we were to lose bivalves, this would be a really important problem in terms of impacting coastal biodiversity, impacting coastal function, ecosystem function, and also in terms of impacting our ability to utilise those resources as a source of human food as well. Based on those insights from Rob, losing bivalves would be pretty disastrous. But these animals are also impacted by contagious cancers. These diseases have only recently been found in bivalves, but could have driven past declines in numbers. Alicia Bruthos, cancer researcher at the Francis Crick Institute, who studies these rare conditions in bivalves, explains. These cancers, which is a leukemia-like cancer in vivers, were reported in the late 60s and in the 70s and 80s of last century. But it was not till 2015 when they were discovered that uh, they were contagious because we needed to analyze the DNA to know that that cancer cell did not originate in that individual and come from a different individual. And do we have any idea 
about how it spreads from one organism to the next? The hypothesis is that somehow the cell is released to the environment. We don't know if it is an active release or if it is when he's dying passively, the cells are released to the environment. Then the cells float in the seawater and they survive in that seawater. So maybe the temperature and the salinity and all these conditions might have an impact. And finally, these vivers, what they usually do in nature is that they filter water. Probably by filtering water, they take some cancer cells that were floating in the water. And those cancer cells go inside and then they start to develop. Mammals' immune systems have evolved in a way to detect things that are foreign and get rid of it. But I'm guessing the immune system of bivalves is quite different to immune systems like ours. So is there a flaw in their immune system that allows this type of contagious cancer? We do know they have defense, but they don't have the same immune system as us. So a lot of research has to be done to actually understand why they are not as successful as our immune system to defend themselves from uh, contagious cancers. There are many parasites that are affecting these kind of animals, the virus. So a lot of research is being done to try to understand why is this happening? I mean, why is not the immune system of these animals fighting against all these parasites and, of course, as well, the contagious cancers? You said that these cells appear to float in the water, you know, passing from one organism into the other. How far do we think these cells can travel? Earlier this year, it was published that a cancer, the same cancer, was found in some clams in the Atlantic coast of Spain and also in the Mediterranean coast of Spain. And those two places are located more than a thousand miles away. So how is this possible? Was the cell, the cancer cell, able to float and travel that far? We are not sure. We also have to consider that maybe human activity played a role in moving that cancer from the Atlantic coast to the Mediterranean coast. But for instance, in mussels, another type of contagious cancer, it has been found in Chile, South America, North America, in Europe, and even in Russia. But in the case of mussels, mussels attach to the boats, and boats travel long distances So by moving the muscles from one area to another, that is probably how this contagious cancer was arriving to so many places in the world. But yeah, in the case of the clams that usually live buried in the sand, so they don't attach to the boats, it's a very interesting question as well. And with these cancers, are they restricted to an individual species in the sense of if a cancer arises in one species, does it stay within that species because they're genetically similar? Or can it sort of jump the species barrier and move into another? For most of them, it is how you describe it. So the cancer arises in an animal and it spreads to other individuals of the same species. But surprisingly, there are several cases in virus where the cancer arose in one viral species And nowadays, it is found in other species. By reading the DNA, you are able to study the history of that cancer. 
we found a cancer in the Guardivinus clam, which is a clam that lives in both the Mediterranean and the Atlantic coast of Spain. By studying the DNA, we find out that the cancer cell did not arose in the Guardivinus clam, but arose in a different species, which was called the stripe Venus clam. And another case of cancer that crossed that species barrier is the muscles. And this one is very interesting because it has gone not only for Metilostrosulus, it is also infecting three extra additional species. That is like the master of cancer. Like, So it seems like we have these cancers that can not only spread from organism to organism, but they can spread potentially from species to maybe different species, and then also can potentially travel in some way we don't know and spread from population to population. So what would this mean if these types of cancers impacted lots of bivalve populations? What would be the impact of that? We should be very careful with our economic activities when moving animals from one place to another, and not only animals, even with the seawater. We should now think on cancer like a parasite. In the case of contagious cancer, it does behave as a parasite and try to track at least these movements so we don't put the disease into a disease-free area because imagine that these cancers become very aggressive and they reduce potentially the number of individuals and they drive it to extinction. That will be an ecological problem. But if we keep the disease-free areas being a disease-free area, so no cancer goes into there, at least not by our activities. In a scenario where this happens, that all the population reduces, we can repopulate with those ones that didn't have the disease. Well, that would be a relief. Fascinating stuff, isn't it? Julia was talking with Alicia Bruros from the Francis Crick Institute down in London. Now, so far, cases of contagious cancers have only been documented in these three animal types, Tasmanian devils, dogs and the shellfish that we were just hearing about. But we can still learn a lot about cancer biology in general from cases like these and question whether these could arise elsewhere, for instance, in us. Now, Elizabeth Murchison is still with us, and let's pick up where we left off when we were talking about the transmissible tumours in dogs, Elizabeth. What can we learn by studying how these cancers do what they do to inform our knowledge of, of cancer biology more generally? Well, one thing about contagious cancers is that they frequently live much longer than cancers that just arise and remain within a single individual. And that means that we can study cancer's long-term evolution. And that can tell us how cancers can continue to adapt to their hosts. And this can give us insights into the optimal evolutionary routes that cancers can take. But also they can tell us about how cancers can adapt to escape the immune system under fairly extreme circumstances. So cancers often adapt to escape the immune system even when they're only non-transmissible cancers just arising and staying within their host. But these transmissible cancers have to escape what we call an allogeneic immune system, an immune system of a different individual, a foreign graft in essence. And this very extreme setting, insights into that can tell us more about how cancers escape the immune system, even when they stay in the same host. In recent years, we've discovered that cancers also team up with the microbes in the body 
And in fact, just this week, there was a paper out that looked at the presence of microorganisms inside cancer cells, endowing those cancer cells with additional abilities, such as greater resilience, so they can spread around the body better. Has anyone looked at these transmissible tumours and asked if there are bacterial passengers in them that might be aiding and abetting their spread? That's a fascinating question. And that's actually something that we're currently looking at, although we don't have anything conclusive to say yet. One thing that is really interesting in the dog cancer, however, is that it sometimes takes up little pieces of DNA called mitochondrial DNA from its hosts. And so as it's spread along, it's sometimes stolen mitochondrial DNA from its host, which helps it to adapt better to being a cancer. And this might also be a mechanism which might occur from time to time in human cancers. And speaking of human cancers, has this actually happened? I, I know I reassured people by saying that th- there's no defined equivalent to these cancers that's spreading among humans all the time at the moment, but, but are there isolated examples of this happening? Yeah, there are quite a number of examples of cancers spreading between two people or between small groups of people, and these usually occur in three different types of settings. So first of all, there are kind of accidents, such as surgical accidents, for instance. And there's one very terrifying case of a surgeon who was operating on a cancer patient and accidentally cut himself on the hand. And then several months later, he discovered a a cancer in his hand, at the surgical injury site, and it turned out to be the cells of the patient, although he was cured. And then there are organ transplants. So when organ transplants are performed, there are very stringent screening processes in place to prevent accidental transfer of cancer cells. But unfortunately, this has happened from time to time, and cancers have then manifested in the organ recipient. And then the final case is during pregnancy. And this is usually a cancer from a pregnant mother can spread to the fetus. This is extraordinarily rare, and usually involves leukemia or lymphoma. These are all extremely tragic and sad, rare cases, but they can happen from time to time. I wanted to touch on that point you raised about pregnancy because, of course, that is the body tolerating the invasive growth of tissue, which is genetically incompatible to it. The baby is genetically different from mum. So is there evidence that these transmissible cancers in the animals that get them are actually exploiting that mechanism that is a necessity of the way we reproduce? It could well be that transmissible cancers are making use of some of the adaptations that are there in our cells, which allow pregnancy to occur, which, as you said, is a a circumstance when two genetically distinct cell types coexist within the same body. So there is some preliminary evidence suggesting that that could well be the case, that some of these pregnancy mechanisms are being used. Elizabeth Murchison from the Transmissible Cancers Group at the University of Cambridge. Thank you very much indeed. So overall, in very rare instances under specific conditions, cancers can spread from one organism to another. Now exactly how this happens is still unclear, but it looks like the key is that the cancer can hide itself away from the immune system, maybe by removing markers from its surface so it can fly under the immune radar, or making changes to its genetic code that allow it to in some way reprogram the host's immunity. Understanding the distinction between what makes a cancer transmissible or not could help to save species like the Tasmanian devil from extinction, as well as protecting our marine ecosystems. And although very unlikely to cause outbreaks like we see with viruses amongst us humans, thanks to our immune systems being very good at destroying foreign cells, 
Better understanding these conditions can show us how cancer spread in our own bodies and prevent the rare instances of cancer passing on via processes like transplantation. Well, now let's finish with our question of the week. And we're swerving onto the topic of electricity now as Evelyn Wang tackles this battery baffler from Barry. What causes degradation in electric car batteries? And what are the upcoming developments in EV battery technology? The batteries that power your electric car are lithium-ion batteries. Dr Chloe Coates from the University of Cambridge is here to drive us to the bottom of this. For a consumer, let's say an electric vehicle driver, there are three main considerations that impact battery degradation. These are the temperature of the system, the state of charge, i.e. whether it's fully charged, discharged or somewhere in between, and the usage profile, so whether someone is charging or discharging, either fast or slow. When discharging a lithium-ion battery, the lithium ions move from the negative graphite electrode to the positive cathode, which produces electrical energy we can use to power a car. On charge, the lithium ions are moved in the opposite direction. Both electrodes undergo large volume changes as the lithium is inserted or removed which can induce stresses to the particles and lead to cracking. The graphite anodes are affected by what is known as lithium plating. At low temperatures or at fast rates, the lithium can't intercalate into the graphite layers fast enough, and so lithium metal accumulates at the surface. In extreme cases, the lithium cannot play evenly on the surface and instead forms dendrites, which can short-circuit the cell, and this represents a major safety hazard. Another component of the lithium-ion battery is the liquid electrolyte, which conducts the lithium ions in between the graphite and the cathode. The molecules that make up the electrolyte can decompose at high voltages on cycling. This can cause surface layers that can increase the resistance in the battery. The degradation mechanisms discussed here are only a sample of the reactions that can occur in a battery. The interplay between the different mechanisms and how it is affected by the order in which they occur remains an important question. So how do we improve on this? In most cases, moderation is key. Perhaps more unexpectedly, more degradation occurs at high or low states of charge. So ideally, you would want your car to charge extremely slowly and always keep it about halfway charged. So what's next in battery technology? Research into the specific conditions and reactions that cause degradation will continue to help improve current lithium-ion batteries. There is also ongoing research into solid electrolytes or moving beyond lithium ions. However, many of these technologies need further study. Well, now you know. And next time, we're going to be trying to answer this question from Tibor. Does potential energy have any mass? If I were to charge a phone battery... Would it become heavier? Well, I take my phone everywhere with me, so should I wait till the battery's a bit lower to prevent having to carry that extra weight? We'll find out in our next Question of the Week instalment. And if you've, of course, got a question or a query or even the answer, why not send it in to chris at thenakedscientist.com and we'll take a look. And there we're going to end it for this week, but do join us at the same time next week when we have a special Easter extravaganza with talk of stargazing, grief, Formula One and some of the biggest controversies in science media. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye.